Heavenly Father, we, um, Lord, we're grateful to be here this morning. We're grateful to be in your presence. We're grateful to be able to approach your throne and worship you. Lord, as we open Judges chapter three this morning, we, um, we pray that you would speak to us and you would meet us where we are, Lord. You'd minister to our needs. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen. So we've been going through Judges for a couple of weeks now. Um, this morning, actually, we're gonna see our very first judge in the book of Judges. The first three judges, actually. If you remember... Um, Chapter one was sort of a summary of Joshua's life. Chapter two was sort of a summary of chapter one. And um, so this morning in chapter three, we're gonna look briefly at three judges, Othniel, Ehud, and Shagmar. And, um, and these are three of the lesser known judges. But I think there's some, some valuable lessons that can be learned from, from each of these three men that the Lord chooses to use. So we're going to pick up the text this morning in verse 1. Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations, the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Heavites who lived on Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were there for the testing of Israel, to know whether Israel would obey the commandments of the Lord, which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And their daughters took to themselves for wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. Now, You'll recall from the book of Joshua and the opening chapters of the book of Judges that the people had been, once they crossed over into the promised land, the different tribes had been sent out into the land to, to lay hold of the, the allotments, right? The parcels of land that had been assigned to them by the Lord. Remember, each tribe was given its own little region, its own little area in Israel. And the tribes had varying degrees of success in accomplishing their mission. Some of the tribes, they utterly failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land. Some of the tribes, they made treaties with the enemy. They granted the enemy quarter. Some of the tribes, they left these, these pagan, idolatrous peoples in the land. And as we saw, the people, they paid a heavy cost for failing to carry out the Lord's will. Now, as we pick up the text this morning, it says, now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. So remember, initially, the Lord's plan was to have these wicked people groups driven out of the land. 
but the people, they, they failed to carry out the Lord's will. And so since they were still there, since the Hebrew people had not been obedient to the Lord, remember it says the Lord, he didn't drive everybody out of the land. He left some of the people there. He hadn't given the people complete victory yet. And now it says in Judges that the Lord was using these different people groups, the Perizzites, the Hevazites, the, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites. He's using them to test the people of Israel, to prove them. Now, keep in mind, when the Lord is testing Israel, just like when the Lord is testing us, right, that test, it isn't for the Lord. That test is for us, right? The testing of the Lord, it doesn't reveal anything to the Lord, right? The Lord doesn't put a test before us and he's not sitting in his throne on high, biting his nails. Ooh, I, I, hope, I hope they pass the test. I hope they don't fail. I sure hope they do the right thing. The Lord already knows the outcome of the test. The testing is for us. The testing is to reveal our hearts to ourselves. And I think that that should be a great encouragement to us. Right, when, when the Lord saved me, when the Lord called you, he did so with the full knowledge of all of my weaknesses. With the full knowledge of past and future failures. Yet he called us anyways. He called us knowing that we were going to fail. Now, this specific testing apparently was whether to reveal whether they were ready to do battle on the Lord's behalf or not. Now, most of the people at this point, they, they hadn't fought in the previous wars to clear the land. This is sort of a generation later. Most of the people who are alive now, they hadn't been a part of, of Joshua's conquests. Most of these people, if they had crossed over the Jordan with Joshua, they would have been very young. And know what it says in verse 2. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. Right? The people were living in a time and in a region when it was essential for them to know how to fight. Particularly, it was important for them to know how to fight because they had failed to drive out their enemies. They needed to know how to fight because they left their enemies all around them. The men needed to know how to defend the nation. Right? And so, so, they, they needed drill instructors who were who ready to teach the coming generations how to do battle. They needed men to, to, to teach these younger believers how to, how to engage in battle. And I was just thinking about that, how the Lord had to prepare this younger generation to engage in battle. And, and nothing has really changed in that regard. The church just like Israel, is in desperate need of older, seasoned warriors to step up and help mentor younger believers. So often in the church today, it seems like there's this push for, we gotta get the young people in. We've gotta get the families in. And, and, and that's true, we do. We do with outreaches. Those things are not only important, they're essential. 
right? If the church is going to continue, there has to be another generation of people in the church. But not at the expense of the older generation, right? The church also needs wisdom. I wasn't pointing at you, Sam, if that's what you thought. I kind of did the knife hand that direction. (laughs) We still need old people, Sam. (laughs) Right? We need people in the church that have wisdom. We, We need that life experience. Right? And just, again, I'm not pointing at you, Sam, but just because you might be a little gray on top, that doesn't mean that the Lord has sent you out to pasture. But you still have a mission. You still have a calling. You still have work to do within the body of Christ. And look at verse six. And their daughters they took to themselves for wives. And their own daughters they gave to their sons. And they served their gods. Now this is interesting. This is a big part of the reason why the people failed the test. Because they intermarried with the people groups around them. Now I've mentioned this before. But verses like this have been used to teach, I don't even want to say to teach, but to twist. To twist the scriptures, to teach that somehow God is against interracial relationships or things like that. And I'm sure you already know this, I'm probably wasting my breath saying it, but that is utter idiocy. That is not what scripture is teaching at all. Right? That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Right, this issue of of intermarriage, it had nothing to do with race. It had nothing to do with genetics or skin color or, or country of origin. It had everything to do with spirituality. Right? In fact, within Judaism, there were provisions for, for Gentiles, for non-Jews, to convert to Judaism. And, and at that point, they were free to marry other Hebrew people. Right? There were opportunities for them to come to faith. Right? The issue here that the Lord is addressing is outside spiritual influences that come into the marriage relationship. Now remember, these were pagan people. These were people who worshipped false gods. These were people who engaged literally in child sacrifice. I mean, these are, 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 are wicked people. These are people who, who worship the god Molech. And in order to worship the god Molech, they had this bronze statue where his arms were spread out. And they lit a fire below the arms and they would place, place newborn babies in the arms and sacrifice them. I mean, these are, these are deplorable people. And the Lord didn't want those influences working their way in to the daily lives of his people. And as, you, as, we, as we go through scripture, we see that that's exactly what ended up happening. If you, if you look at Jeremiah chapter seven, verse 30, it says this. For the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of of Hinnom, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. So we see that the children of Judah, they began to practice infant sacrifice. 
And this is still going on a couple hundred years later. It says they built in the high places of Topheth. And this word Topheth in Hebrew, literally, it means roaster or a place of fire. And it says they did this to burn and their daughters in the fire. That is why God didn't want his people intermarrying with the Canaanites. But the people, they failed the test. They, 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 they married unbelievers. They got involved in these practices. If only there were some application for believers today there. It's a little joke. There is. Right? There's a reason why the scriptures prohibit believers marrying unbelievers. It's tough to make a marriage work when the marriage, marriage is tough anyway, right? When you're both going the right direction, when you both are serving the Lord, when you're both, both aligned, it's hard. But when, when the husband and wife are going different directions and they have different life goals and they have different priorities, when they're, when they're heading to a different eternal destination, it's even tougher. And more often than not, the believer ends up getting drawn away from the Lord. And that's not always what happened. There are exceptions, but generally that's what happens. And that's what that verse about being unequally yoked is all about, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? And he uses this illustration of, a, of, of, of two plows being yoked together. And he says, if you have two ox and they're, they're yoked together to a plow and it starts to pull, they're going to go the same place. They're going to go the same direction because they're, because they're tied together. He says, but if you take an ox and a donkey or a kangaroo or a zebra and, and you lash them together, they're going to pull in different directions. Believers and unbelievers are built differently. We're, they're, they're natural. And the Bible says that we are new creations in Christ. And that since we're, we're supernatural. We're, we're empowered and infused with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and naturally, we're going to be pulling in different directions. We're going to be headed in different directions. And sometimes the Lord is gracious. Right? Sometimes the Lord moves and the unbelieving spouse comes to the Lord. And that's a glorious day. But that's an exception, not the rule. Now to be clear, Paul, Paul also says, look, if you're married to an unbeliever, stay married to the unbeliever. He says in 1 Corinthians seven twelve, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And so what Paul says is, look, if you're married, you're married. Do your best to work it out and pray for your spouse. Ask the Lord to work. But there's a reason why the Lord commands his people to stay away from marriage relationships with unbelievers. Because it's hard. Because it's a recipe for a difficult marriage. 
And it so often leads the believers astray. Right? If you're considering a marriage with an unbeliever, don't. Right? That, that's a word from the Lord right there. Don't do it. And, you know, I suppose if who you marry matters, then who you romance matters too, right? Who you date matters. I, I think there's a, a precedent here for, for believers not dating unbelievers. You know, and that's hard. Oh, he's, he's so dreamy. Maybe he is, but it's going to turn into a nightmare. I promise. Right? And sometimes following Jesus, it requires sacrifice. It requires a sacrifice of some of our relationships. And, and I'll tell you something funny. This is kind of weird. Not really related to the story, but kind of. So, you know, this morning, I, I'm, I'm kind of lazy, you may know. And um, I didn't feel like typing out the verses for, for the couple verses we just looked at. So I, you know, I Googled the verses, and I cut and pasted. And immediately after that, I got a notification on Instagram that I had a new follower. And I clicked it, and it was called Find Your Squeeze. And in the description, it says, speed dating. No, it says, Christian dating meets speed dating. In Boise, Idaho, find your squeeze in the trees. Some weird algorithm to, for, I don't know. But, so I'm not going to look at the unequally yoked verses anymore. But so, okay, so we get to the first judge here. My wife's looking at me like, what are you talking about? Sorry, babe. Verse seven, we see the first judge, Othniel, come out. It says, and the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Ashtoreth. Once again, the people get sucked into this cycle, this, this spiral of sin, and they fall away from the Lord, and they begin to worship these false gods. And it says they did what was evil in the Lord's sight. Therefore, verse 8, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan. Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathiam, eight years. It says the Lord was angry at their disobedience. And so he turned them over to this guy by the name of Cushan, Rishathiam. Now that name, Cushan, Rishathiam, it means double darkness or double wickedness. Right? Judging by his name, this wasn't a good God-fearing man. Right? And it says that the people were in bondage for eight years to Cushan Rithathiam, and he oppressed them. But, verse nine, when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. So, after eight years, the people finally repent and cry out to the Lord. Now, I don't know, but it seems like eight years is a long time to be under cruel oppression before you finally cry out to the Lord, right? It reminds me a little bit of the story of Jonah. 
Remember the Lord tells Jonah he's supposed to go to Tarshish. And remember he gets on a ship and he goes the other direction and he heads to Nineveh. And remember he ends up getting thrown overboard and he's swallowed by the great fish. And remember what it says? And after three days, Jonah called out to the Lord. Think about that. He was in the belly of the fish for three days before he decided to call out to the Lord. That's a stiff-necked man there. That's a hard-hearted man there. And the people, it takes them eight years. And finally, they call out to the Lord. And what happens when they call in the name of the Lord? He raises up a deliverer for them. He raises up someone who will set them free from this cruel bondage. And this man's name is Othniel. As it turns out, Othniel is Caleb's nephew. And the spirit of the Lord was upon him. And he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rithathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And he prevailed over Cushan Rithathiah. I, I think it's just there so many times so I have to keep saying that word over and over again. And the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So the spirit of the Lord comes upon Othniel. And he experiences these great things. He has, he has great victory in the spirit. Now I want to park here for just a second and talk about that that the spirit of God came upon him. And you know, we've talked before about the, you know, the three ministries of the Holy Spirit. He's, he's with the world, he's in us as believers, and he comes upon us, he empowers us for certain occasions. And that's sort of what we're talking about here, this, this coming upon. And I just wanna point this out. As believers, we need the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives if we are going to accomplish anything of significance in our lives, we need the empowering and the direction and the guidance of the Holy Spirit. In fact, most of us, just to get through the day, we need the guiding and the empowering of the Holy Spirit. And I was talking about this recently. But you know, I, I've probably preached several thousand sermons at a minimum, written and taught several thousand Bible studies. You know, and I, I know how to write a sermon. I know how to study. And as we talked about before, you know, I can, I can get up in my own strength and I can preach a, a structurally sound sermon. You know, and I can do all of that without the Holy Spirit. In fact, I'm sure that I have. But here's the thing. If I get up here on my own and preach a sermon, it might be structurally sound. You know, it might have all the right elements. You know, I might be able to work in some, some clever references. My sermon might be homiletically sound. It might have good hermeneutics. It might, all those things. But with no Holy Spirit, there's no strength in it. There's no power behind it. I might as well stand up here and read Dr. Seuss. Sam, I am. I do not like green eggs and ham. Right? We need the Holy Spirit 
if we are going to do anything of value for the kingdom. And remember the church in Galatia, they were apparently struggling with this. And so Paul writes them in Galatians chapter three and verse three. And he says, are you guys so foolish? He says, having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He says, look, you guys started off right. You started off being led and guided and and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And now you think you're going to complete it on your own strength? Paul says, it doesn't work that way. So Othniel, he led the people for about 40 years, a generation. And then guess what happened? That same cycle, that same spiral. And now we get to Ehud. Now Ehud is either the greatest fear for preachers or the greatest joy for preachers, depending on how mature you are. Now, for me, this is a delightful passage. Um, maybe I'll, I'll unpack it for a second. All you junior high boys are going to love this story. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So again, the Lord delivers the people. He gave them victory over the things that they were in bondage to. He sets them free. And we see these people, they, they're set free, and they're walking in their freedom. But then after a while, they quit walking in that freedom. And we see this principle that the Lord grants us freedom. The Lord grants us victory, but it isn't always permanent. The people were set free, but they had to make daily decisions to abide in that freedom and to walk in that freedom. And they did it for a while. But eventually, they forgot how bad their bondage was. They forgot how oppressive their bondage really was. All they remembered was the good old days. Remember how fun it was when we worshiped Baal? Remember how fun it was when we got to go to the temple of Ashtoreth? Those were were good times. And so bit by bit, step by step, they stopped walking with the Lord. And it didn't happen all at once. It wasn't like one day they're faithfully serving the God and the next day they're worshiping Baal, right? It was a a series of compromises, a little bit here, a little bit of idolatry there. And before long, they find themselves back in this place of bondage. Again, if only there was some spiritual application for us, right? The Lord, he saves us. He delivers us from the bondage of sin. He delivers us from the things that have kept us locked up in chains. And we're set free and we celebrate and we're so happy and things are going well for a while. Our lives are filled with joy. We're walking with the Lord. But after a time, we forget how terrible that bondage was. And we remember the good old days. And what happens, we start that slow drift. And we begin to find ourselves back in that same old bondage. The Lord has set us free, but we have to make a decision to walk in that freedom. We have to choose to abide in that freedom. Verse 12 again. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. 
And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So we see the Lord uses Eglon, the king of Moab, to discipline his people because they had done evil in his sight. For 18 years, the people languished under Eglon. And then verse 15, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So the people, they cry out to God. And guess what happens? Again, the Lord begins to move on their behalf and he sent the deliverer. Right? Every time the people cry out to God, he sends them a deliverer. And this time, he raises up this guy named Ehud. Now, scripture notes that Ehud was a left-handed man. How many of you guys are left-handed? Right? A couple of us. So I actually Googled it last night. One in 10 people worldwide are left-handed. One in 10 of us had to use the green scissors in grade school. And it was rough, right? The struggle was real, right? Many cultures, even our own culture in the past, it was socially unacceptable to be left-handed. I remember my grandma telling me that when she was in school, if kids started to write or draw with their left hand, the teacher would come by and smack them with a ruler and teach them to, to draw right, right-handed. And many cultures today, it, it's still unacceptable to be left-handed. And here's the reason why. Your, your right hand was your eating hand. Your left hand was the wiping hand. And, and that's, that's really why it is. And you might think that's gross. It's gonna be all downhill. Just, just to warn you guys as we get into the text here. Right? And it seems like it, it may have been unusual in the time of judges for people to be left-handed as well. And there are several times when it notes that people were left-handed. In Judges 20, it notes that there were, there were 700 men of Benjamin who could fight with their right hand as well as their left. Right? These were like the elite warriors. And, you know, what comes to mind to me initially is I know something you don't know. I am not left-handed. Some of you guys got that. Some of you, some of you guys will have to Google that later. Um, but this word, left-handed, in the Hebrew, it literally means right-hand bound. And so there are some scholars who believe that Ehud may have been handicapped or possibly his right hand was injured or maimed. So he was unable to wield the sword with his right hand. And so it says in verse 16, and Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes. So Ehud, he makes this little short sword, sharpened on both sides. And because he's left-handed, he straps it to his right thigh because you, you, you pull out a sword that way. You don't, it gets stuck that way. 
right? And so, so it specifies that it's right here, kind of on the unusual side. And it says, he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Scripture just calls it out there, verse 17. A little note for y'all. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. So again, scripture notes that, that Eglon was a very fat man. Now, the text indicates that he was exceedingly fat. He wasn't just a little rotund, right? He didn't just have a little belly. He wasn't portly. He was gigantic. And I don't want to paint an incorrect image in your mind's eye, but there in his throne room, he may have had a certain smuggler encased in carbonite. Some of you... Some of you got that. Some of you, some of you are Googling that a little bit. What's that mean? You'll figure it out. So Ehud is select, somebody just got it. <laughs> Ehud is selected to bring tribute to Eglon. Now, most likely, ironically, the tribute is food. It's probably grain and vegetables. And so, so he drops off the tribute, and him and his, his little troop, they start to head home. And once they get out of the town, he sends his guys on, and he goes back. And he says, hey, Eglon, I have a secret message for you. But it's for your ears only. It's top secret. And Eglon says, well, what is it, a pumpkin scone recipe? But he's excited. And verse 20 and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in, the cool, in, alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. So here's the scene. They're sitting on top of this palace in this rooftop terrace where they could catch the, the breeze of the evening. And Ehud says to King Eglon, he says, I have a message for you. And he gets up and he walks over. And in my mind, I imagine he's like leaning forward to, to whisper in Eglon's ear. And verse 21 says, And Ehud reached with his left hand and took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. How's that for some intrigue? All right, this guy, probably handicapped, sneaks up and stabs Eglon in the belly. And you might think, ooh, that's gross. Oh, no. That's not the gross part. Verse 22. And the hilt also went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade so that he could not pull the sword out of his belly. And the dung came out. Just in case you were wondering what happened there. You like the attention to detail? Where do you go with this? So the blade goes in, and Ehud stabs him so hard that the hilt goes all the way in. The whole 18 inches of the sword is inside Eglon. And what happens next? The fat envelops it. And Ehud can't pull his sword back out, and he just leaves it there. 
And again, notice the detail. There's no real nice way to say it. It says, and the dung came out. The King James tries to be a little more polite. It says, the dirt came out. But you know what? The people, the original recipients, they would understand exactly what was being said. He pooped himself. Now, I have two junior high boys. And butts and farts and poop, they're fairly common conversation topics around my house. So much so, in fact, that my three-year-old daughter, Hannah, now, Whenever she breaks wind, she yells, I farted! It's just this little cackle thing. And great. So this is a great story for you boys. I'm glad you're here today. And then it says, Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. So Ehud locks the door so no one can get into this roof chamber. And what do the servants say? Surely he is relieving himself. Oh, he must be on the toilet. Naturally. Now, there wasn't actual plumbing in those days. You know, and, and most people just went outside. But, but some of the palaces, archaeology has shown us some of the palaces, they had a little outhouse type situation inside the houses. There would be a little outhouse like on the second floor with a hole in the floor and it would, the product would fall through into a bucket and the servants would, would take it out and clean it. And so the, the servants, they think that he's in the toilet. Well, it smelled like poop. He'd already gone on the floor, right? And so that's what they think happened. The dirt had already come out. Now, to my knowledge, this is speculation based on sort of historical norms and archaeological evidence, you know, but probably there is this bathroom, as I mentioned, on the rooftop terrace. And as I said, it's sort of an outhouse with a poop chute. I don't know what else to call it. And now remember, they're on the rooftop, the doors are locked, and there are guards on the other side. How did Ehud get away? How did he make his great escape on this rooftop with the doors locked? Now, I, I researched this extensively, actually, as you might imagine, if you know me. And... Um, Due to some technical reasons in the Hebrew language, this is what most scholars think. Literally, he made a little Andy Dufresne type of getaway. It was a Shawshank Redemption getaway. He went through the sewer. He crawled down the poop chute to the next floor and scrambled away. Verse 25, they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber of the bathroom, they took the key and opened it. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. And they're knocking on the door. There's no answer. Says, sire, do you need a hand with the paperwork? There's no answer at all. And finally they take the key. My wife just gave me a look. (laughs) 
They take the key, open the door, and there's Eglon laying dead on the floor. And it says in verse 26, Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. So Ehud, he makes his great escape. He gets up to the hill country, presumably after taking a bath. He blows the trumpet, and he gathers all the people. And the people begin to follow him at this point. And he said to them, verse 28, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, and not a man escaped. So Moab, verse 30, was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. So Ehud, he, leaned, he leads the, the people in battle against the Moabites. And the Lord gives them this mighty victory. About 10,000 enemy soldiers were killed. And it says the people walked with God for 80 years. About two generations. After him, verse 31, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. That's all the information we get. I feel like we can use a little more information here in verse 20, 31, don't you? I think it was David Gusick who suggested that this might have been such a well-known story at the time that the author didn't even need to bother including the details because everybody already knew the account. And we don't have that luxury, but we can deduce a couple things. First, we can deduce that, that old Shamgar was likely a farmer. Why? Because he's carrying an ox goat. An ox goat is basically an eight to 10 foot long stick. And on one end, it's sharpened and has a metal point. On the other end, it's kind of flat like a square point shovel. And so the farmer would take the stick and he would poke the poke the oxen to get them moving, and he would take the other end to kind of scrape the caked mud off of the plow. Now, we don't know the details, but it seems like Shamgar, he's just out walking around with his sharp stick, attending to his farmer business, and he finds himself in battle with the Philistines, and he kills 600. How? We don't know. I mean, this is, this is Bruce Lee, Bostaff kind of business. And more accurately for, for you older guys, right, this is sort of Theodore Roosevelt business, right? Remember he famously said, speak softly and carry a big stick. And that's what Shamgar did. And somehow Shamgar single-handedly takes out 600 warriors with a stick. Nothing like a good piece of hickory. Now, we don't know if this was a running count over a period of time or if this was all one battle. 
Maybe it was sort of a, a choke point like Thermopylae, or maybe it was in an open battlefield. We don't know. But regardless, this Shamgar, he was used mightily by God. What lessons can we take from this single verse about a man with a sharp stick? I think there's one obvious point of application. That's kind of a point. <laughs> point of application. Shamgar, he used what was in his hand to serve the Lord. He used what he knew to do battle. It reminds me a little bit of, of the account of David and Goliath. Remember, remember the, the whole scene, the Philistines are arrayed out in the field and, and Saul is looking for a champion to go out and slay Goliath. And finally David says, I'll do it. And, and through a series of events, finally Saul says, okay, you can do it. And he brings out his armor and puts it on David. Now remember we learned earlier in 1 Samuel that, that Saul stood a head and shoulders above everybody else. And David at this point, he's but a youth, right? He's a kid. How is the armor of this giant man gonna fit on this little boy? And David says, look, this isn't gonna work. I don't know how to use this equipment. This isn't my equipment. He says, but I've got this sling and I've got these stones and I know how to use them. And this simple shepherd boy with a, with a sling and stones who was available, God used him in a mighty way to deliver the people of Israel. And this is a similar situation here. Oh, Shamgar, he's just a farmer. He says, Lord, I don't have much, but I've got a stick. If you want to use me and my stick, let's do it. And the Lord used him to win a mighty victory. What's in your hand? What skills do you have? What gifts do you have? Are you willing to use your skills and your gifts and your abilities, whatever they may be, for the Lord to further his kingdom? Something interesting, a couple interesting things as we close. First, Shamgar, it's not a Hebrew name. It's most likely a Canaanite name. And it says that his dad's name was Anath, the name of a Canaanite goddess of sex and war. And so it's likely that Shamgar was Hebrew, but his parents were fully engaged in this idolatrous behavior. They had this idolatrous influence so much that they gave him Canaanite names and his dad was named after a Canaanite god. This is, a, this is a guy who didn't grow up in a godly home. But somehow, the Lord gets a hold of this guy. Despite his upbringing, despite his family of origin, the Lord gets a hold of, uh, of Shamgar. And Sam, Shamgar submits to the Lord, and the Lord uses him in a mighty way because he was willing. Now, we see these three guys here. Athanel, Ehud, Shamgar. These guys have very little in common. Athanel is from a, a, a proud, godly family line, right? He seems like the only one that seems like a good candidate to be used by God. 
We see Ehud seemingly on the outside of society a little bit. He, you know, he probably didn't get to play much of a role in his community because of his disability. We see Shamgar, this kid raised in a pagan, idol-worshiping family. Scripture is full of examples of God using unlikely people, isn't it? Over and over again, we see that. Look through the scriptures. Peter, David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these guys, most of the judges that we're gonna see, right? They weren't, they weren't the guys that the world was gonna go looking for to deliver them. Remember when, remember when the Lord says to Samuel, all right, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna depose Saul. I have a new king. I want you to go to Jesse's family. Remember, Samuel goes to Jesse's family to find the new king. And the first son comes out. And he's a strapping young buck. He looks royal. And Samuel's all excited. Yes, this is our new king. And the Lord says, nope, not him. Next one comes out. The next youngest one. Their next oldest one. And, you know, he's, he's still a good-looking guy. He's big and strong. Yeah, he'll do. The Lord says, nope, not him. File through all of them. And Samuel says, is this it? Is this all you got? And Jesse says, well, there's one more boy. <laughs> you don't want him. He's out in the field tending the goats. He's, he's but a lad. He's but a youth. And remember what the Lord says. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. God has a different criteria for who he's gonna use than we do. You know, we have these, these criteria of success. And they have to check all the boxes if they're going to be our leader. And the Lord says, no, I'm not looking at his stature. I'm not looking at his qualifications. I'm looking at his heart. Is he available? Is he willing to be used? That's what the, God, what the Lord is looking for. That's what God wants. Men and women whose hearts are open and available to him. And for most of us, frankly, that's good news. Because we don't have a lot of qualifications right? Most of us don't stack up to the world's criteria for leaders, but God has a different criteria. Last point of application. Ehud here, he's likely handicapped. And in that culture, it probably made him a bit of an outcast. He couldn't have joined the military. If he was a Levite, he couldn't have served in the priesthood. There wasn't a lot that he could do. He couldn't run a plow. I mean, he was, we see here that he was relegated to being a delivery boy, right? Carrying tribute to the enemy king. He was a um, grubhub driver. You know, kind of low on the totem pole. Not a popular job. Not only was he had a bad job, but delivering to the enemy. There was risk involved as well. And he's probably like, well, gosh, this sucks. Why was I made this way? Why was I born this way? I want to be a warrior. I want to I I be full-bodied. I want to be able to serve the Lord. Why did this happen to me? 
up until that moment when he realized that he was built that way for a specific reason. Up until that moment when he realized that a full, able-bodied man wouldn't have been able to get close to the king like he was. Reminds me a little bit of the story of Esther. Very different situation. Remember, Esther, Hadassah, she finds herself the queen of Persia. And at the same time she becomes the queen in Persia, Haman, this this anti-Semitic guy, he, 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 he starts this campaign to eliminate all of the Jewish people. And so... Esther, Hadassah, she's struggling what to do. How can she help her people as as the queen? And in Esther chapter four, verse 13, her uncle Mordecai comes up and talks to her. And he says this, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. But look at this. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai says, look, if you, if you cower over in the corner in fear, the Lord's still gonna get the job done. But he's not gonna use you. But then he says this, who knows? Maybe you are exactly where you are right now for such a time as this. Mordecai says, look, you didn't choose this life path, but who knows? Maybe the Lord put you exactly where he did, exactly when he did, so that you can serve him in a very specific way that you're not even aware of yet. You, believer, are where you are because God has a plan for you. And he wants to use you in ways that would have been impossible if life had gone according to your plan. As we close, grow where God has planted you. Flourish, blossom where God has you now. Use whatever is in your hand. Whatever God has given you to serve him, Use that to serve him. God can and does use anyone who is available, who is willing. And lastly, with Jesus, there's freedom. With Jesus, there is victory. Without Jesus, there's bondage. With Jesus, there's freedom and victory. But we have to abide in Christ. We have to walk with Jesus in order to maintain that victory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, such a bizarre, weird, for me, funny story. Lord, but underneath all of the weird details, You have a message for us, Lord. You have principles for us to apply to our lives. And Lord, I I pray you'd help us to push aside all the 
weird, humorous aspects of the story, Lord, and, and really drill down and receive what you have for us, Lord, that we could blossom right where we are, Lord, that we would use the tools available to us to serve you to the best of our abilities, Lord. I pray for each man and woman here that we would grow into the men and women that you desire us to be. We ask that in your name, Jesus. Amen.